I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and you know, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. For all of you War Stories super fans out there, first off, we appreciate you. Secondly, if you want to directly support the show, consider becoming a patron. All proceeds go directly into creating and producing better and better content for all listeners. Our patrons have early access to every episode, their own patron-only shows. They can submit questions for our guests and even have some behind-the-scenes access with Sayer and I as we plan out the future of War Stories. The link to join is in the show notes, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. This episode is brought to you by Jill Hare, LMFT of Free Flow Counseling, proudly serving veterans, first responders, and their loved ones. Learn more about Jill and her work surrounding PTSD and trauma recovery at jillhair.com. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne with War Stories, joined today by Hampton Sides. Sir, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me with you guys. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, um, so we generally talk military history, and I know for a fact that I don't talk and am not knowledgeable enough on the Korean War as I'd like to be. And over time, people send book recommendations or ask for book recommendations. And overwhelmingly, um, on frozen ground is, is on the recommendation ground. on desperate ground. Why did I say the frozen chosen on desperate yeah. ground? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, looking at it right here. Um, your book about the chosen reservoir is overwhelmingly the one that gets recommended. Well, um, that's nice to hear. It's certainly. Um the most famous battle it's a book about the most famous battle and the most i think the most sort of epic battle of the korean war but it is the korean war which is often referred to as our forgotten war um for all kinds of reasons uh one of them being that it was never a declared formally declared war and some people think it was just a un police action um and it's also a war that never had a formal ending. There was not an actual treaty. There was just an armistice that left a lot of pretty important questions uns unsorted and unsolved, uh, which is why we still have this DMV, DMZ uh, at the 38th parallel separating South and North Korea that is on high alert. It, it's like a war that didn't have a formal ending and could restart at any time. So all these things make it a messy subject, I think, for a lot of um, historians and a lot of uh, students growing up in high school who get the history, you know, it's just, uh, what was that again? <laughs> was that a real war? What, what was that all about? Well, you know, from the standpoint of lives lost and devastation on the ground, uh, and, and the lives of civilians uh, lost or displaced. Uh, it was it, it was an epic war. It was a huge war. It was essentially a world war that was fought in one little piece of geography, um, kind of the opening salvo of the Cold War. And uh, uh, you know, it's I don't know how deeply we want to get into the weeds of like its origins, but um, and we can we can talk a little bit about that, but. It, uh, it, it, it's also just, um, here's the last reasons. The last reason why it's of the forgotten war is that it ended exactly where it started. Sure. Mm -hmm. At the 38th parallel. Uh, it, it was, it, it, it's a lot of the veterans that I've gotten to know and, and love um, say, we died for a tie. You know, and that's kind of an unsettling narrative, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, we understand victory. We like to think we mostly win our wars, but we also came to understand loss in Vietnam. Um, I think you can say we lost Vietnam, but this is a tie. You know, like yeah. we're, <laughs> it's very, um, uh, it's a draw, you know, and, and, uh, uh, I, my, I'm really into soccer and my, my, my boys are seriously into soccer. And, you know, a lot of those games end in a draw. And um, 
Americans don't like that. They don't understand no. it. How can you die? Um, right. Anyway, so those are some of the reasons I think why it's a forgotten war. But there are individual battles um, and individual actions that happened in the Korean War, which uh, stand out as you know truly epic and heroic. And foremost among those, um, at least for me, was the Battle of Chosen Reservoir. It's. I always think I understand where people are coming from when they call it a police action, trying to get it just right. To your point, it wasn't a declared war. I got it. But some of the fighting, especially the stuff you outline in your book, like mm-hmm. that surpasses some of the things seen in World War II at times. You mm-hmm. know, it's hard to compare one to the other, but it, it doesn't, police action doesn't paint the right picture of what, you know, especially the Marines and the Army soldiers up here north of the 38th parallel went through. That's brutal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the themes that has run through a lot of my previous books has been survival and, um, you know, how people survive extreme circumstances. And when I decided to write about the Chosen Reservoir, I realized that, you know, this was not only was it a battle, but it was a survival story uh, because they were fighting each other, they being principally the 1st Marine Division versus the uh, the Red Army, Mao's troops, who had just entered the war, but there was this third combatant, uh, which was Old Man Winter. Um, it was 30 below zero. Much of the fighting took place in 30 below zero weather in extremely steep wilderness or out on the ice of a reservoir, a lake, a frozen lake. Uh, and a lot of the fighting was hand-to-hand combat. Um, because of the, the, the way the Chinese fought. Uh, so the, the extre- extreme circumstances under which this battle was fought um, adds that element of, you know, like there's, they're, they're trying, I mean, so many of these men died of, of they froze to death. They died, died of exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, weapons wouldn't fire correctly. Um, they couldn't fly helicopters and, or they, they couldn't register their artillery properly. Um, if you turned off a vehicle, you, you wouldn't turn back on, uh, things like that. So it sort of added this um, dimension of, um, of extremity that stalks you know, every move and every decision uh, that both, both the Chinese and the, and the Marines uh, are making as they move through this battle. It, um, cause we, you know, we talk about other battles and wars and, you know, world war one in the trenches comes up, obviously hell. I just feel mm-hmm. like going back in time, that's hell, mm-hmm. uh, Pacific theater, world war two hell mm-hmm. on desperate ground, reading that book, mm-hmm. hell, you know, just going through that because, mm-hmm. and I like, I like your description on how you describe it on the book on desperate on your website on desperate ground is an immediate grunts eye view mm-hmm. of history that serves an enthralling illustration of what ordinary men are capable of accomplishing in the most difficult circumstances. Yeah. And I don't know how you can forge a more difficult circumstance, not just the weather that you're talking about and the terrain, but sort of the disorganized and the, well, the arrogance of American leadership mm-hmm. that these grunts are now having to suffer as a result. Cause they're there to do their job. You know, they're going to do their job in these conditions, wherever you're putting them, that's what they're there to do. But that's also part of this, I think, tragedy or just unfortunate, the stalemate, all those different labels we could put on this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a huge part of it. And maybe that we call it the forgotten war and all these things, but in a way, and I know you mentioned Vietnam, but to me, it's kind of the beginning of where we are today in a sense, whereas mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two, we have to get drug into this sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be engaged. This is Europe's war. We're not mm-hmm. the world's police. Mm-hmm. And now here we are calling it a policing. Police mm-hmm. are locals, right? They're the ones who just have their little stick and they live in the neighborhood walking a beat. But we're calling this a police action in Korea fought by Americans against the Chinese. Yeah. How is the word police even used here? Or yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, I think that part of that was politics. Uh, uh, Truman, President Truman, didn't really want to call it a war. He wanted to minimize it because midterm elections were were, were coming in the middle of this, uh, really just a few weeks before the battle. Uh, 
midterm midterms happened. So that was a term he threw out there to the media. Um, it was a war. Let, let's just not mince words or or um, use semantics or, or, or euphemisms. It was a war. It was a devastating war. The death count was much higher per per day and per year than Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was. It it had at many points. Uh, the threat of, of, of escalating into a nuclear war. Um, it, it involves some of the world's most powerful uh, uh, dictators, including Stalin and Mao, um, and what has become the very strange dictatorship of the Kim dynasty. Um, and, uh, and then it, and in the center of the whole story, you mentioned arrogance and you mentioned narcissism or, or, or uh, the chaos of the leadership. Uh, at this at its center is of course General Douglas MacArthur, this um, profoundly arrogant uh, general who was running the occupation of Japan and actually running the occupation of J- Japan quite well. Uh, that's something he was really good at because uh, yeah. he already was an emperor in his own mind, I think. So he became essentially the de facto emperor uh, as he was he was rebuilding Japan and. Um, suddenly this conflict breaks out in Korea, a place that most Americans had never even heard of. And uh, we were unprepared. We had not armed properly. The, the South Korean fledgling democracy there, and it was barely a democracy. It was actually being run by some pretty um, hardcore right-wing people. Um, but uh, Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current dictator, uh, suddenly, unprovoked apparently just marched across the 38th parallel this um you know to unite all of korea and to and to uh uh turn it into a communist uh totalitarian state under his leadership and um uh so we suddenly had to react because we had pledged to defend south korea um and i mean i have to go back just a little bit to say that uh after world war ii the um, the victors had to figure out what to do with the spoils of the Japanese empire. And Japan had colonized Korea uh, prior to World War II um, and had r- rather brutally had run it as a kind of a vassal state of, of the Japanese empire. And uh, so kind of sitting around the negotiating table, uh, the, the Soviets under Stalin said, well, we want, we want Korea. It's pretty close to the Russian Far East. And uh, we didn't want to allow them to have all of Korea. Um, so somebody decided to, there just happened conveniently to be the 38th parallel, which is just goes right across the kind of the waste, the middle of, um, of the Korean peninsula. Arbitrary line. Um, a completely random kind of geopolitical decision was made by diplomats. Um, and it was a tragic decision because Korea mm-hmm. was one society, one language, one culture. There's really no difference, or at least there was not then any difference between North and South. Um, they wanted to be one country and they, you know, they should be one country. But anyway, this line was drawn just as lines were drawn across through Berlin, you remember there was all these sectors of Berlin after World War II to yeah. placate and uh, wh- whatever the Soviets might want. And the, and the Soviets uh, sort of got North Korea and we got South Korea. So we were pledged to defend South Korea when Kim Il-sung invaded. And uh, it took us a while to scramble the troops together and get the Marines over there. Uh, and um, we pushed a, after an amazing operation called the Incheon Invasion, uh, um, Amphibious Landing at Incheon, uh, which was one of the highest moments of, of MacArthur's military career, um, pushed Kim Il-sung back to the 38th parallel and beyond. And, you know, we, if we just done that and just said, that's it, war's over, uh, it would have saved millions of lives, millions, billions of dollars, and uh, the war would have ended up exactly where it ended up anyway, which is the 38th parallel, <laughs> which is kind of a sad and tragic irony. But I think what happened was that MacArthur got a little greedy and he started saying, well, let's not just push him back to the 38th parallel. Let's push him all the way back to Manchuria, 
let's unite all of Korea under our regime. Uh, let's, let's essentially do what Kim was trying to do, but do it in reverse and, and push, push Kim out uh, and take it, take it all. And we started to do just that, pushing north, north, north towards the Yalu River, which is the border with Manchuria, which is, which is China. Mm -hmm. um, so the Chinese start to get very nervous. Uh-oh, here come the Americans pushing north towards our border. Uh, maybe we need to enter the war. And so that essentially is what the Chosen Reservoir battle is all about. It's, it's the moment when the Chinese in full force enter the war and they stream across that Yalu River uh, under cover of night. This is what they're really good at because they are essentially a guerrilla army. They, they can preserve the element of surprise and, and camouflage and they don't need roads because they, don't, they are not a mechanized army. They're, they're a foot army. They, they're on foot and they also have, if you can believe it, uh, camels and uh, really? shaggy horses, these Mongolian ponies. Uh, but they don't, hmm. they are very difficult to spot from the air. Um, so the intelligence uh, that MacArthur's intelligence was quite flawed and we, we, we didn't realize that they had come across in such large numbers until it was almost too late. And uh, so what, uh, Hampton, what were those large numbers that we're talking about here? Because I mean, it's, it is a, it's like a peasant force. I mean, is that, it's not really an organized military per se, as I understand it. Well, and, it's more organized than you might think. Um, okay. Don't forget that the, um, that Mao um, had just recently won the civil war in China. Mm -hmm. um, and Mao, for all of his weirdness uh, as, and, and all of his, uh, you know, later uh, under his regime, all his cruelty and brutality, um, he was a very effective uh, military tactician uh, who was very actively involved in planning this, in, uh, uh, if you want to call it invasion. Uh, and he um, it was mainly the Ninth Army. It was called the Ninth Army Group that came across. But we're talking about 350,000 uh, with another million or so waiting still in Manchuria, getting ready to, to cross. Um, they were a little more organized than you might think. It's just that they were not a traditional army in the sense that they, they didn't have tanks. They didn't have uh, motorized vehicles to, to speak of. They didn't have an air force to, um, to give them um, support from the air. They didn't have a Navy. <laughs> um, they were a ground force, a guerrilla ground force, and they were quite effective with, with their mortars and with small artillery. Um, but really what they were about was numerical superiority and the element of surprise because they moved only at night. They only fought at night. Uh, that's because they were terrified of American air power. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and they also um, didn't have sufficient weapons so sometimes what they would do is they would they would come in at night and they would they would they would attack, um, and the first wave would have weapons, but they would get mowed down. And so the second wave was supposed to come. They didn't have weapons. They would pick up the weapons of those who had been mowed down, and continue the charge. Uh, and you know, if you look, it, one way to look at this, of course, is that Mal was willing to use his men as cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. He was willing to sustain a level of casualties that we would think we would consider obscene. Sure. You know, just like, uh, uh, yes, they were brave uh, or maybe yes, they were just terrified of their, um, their superiors uh, who told them go march, you know, just like go, go, you know, march into battle without a weapon. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but usually these waves uh, of, of, of attackers would eventually descend on a position and often that fighting turned into hand-to-hand. -hand. I mean, the, the, the Marines are using the butts of their rifles. They're using entrenching tools. They're using knives. You know, they're using pistols. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat that's almost, it's almost medieval or something. Sure. Uh, but it's also happening in this 
incredible cold. And so no one can react as quickly. No one can think as quickly. Um, it, people are kind of lethargic and a kind of a daze. And oh, I've, and, and then the, the other factor that makes it so bizarre is that it's happening at night. Mm -hmm. The glare of these phosphorus, you know, these flares and, you know, just the whole scene is bizarre and stra strange and uh, all the tracer bullets. And, you know, it's uh, uh, all the men that I interviewed talk about, they talk about the cold, of course, and how it never really left them, but they talk about the weird light and fighting at night in, in, uh, in these very bizarre circumstances. It, it it's easy from the American side, I think, to look at that and say, look at that weak army mm -hmm. that, that has to do these things like travel on foot, doesn't mm -hmm. have tanks, doesn't have aircraft. Yeah. But realistically, what you described is, is really smart mm -hmm. to take on the American force. Why try to fight the Americans in broad daylight? Right. Why, why try to take them on their own terms? It's, I mean, night fighting yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, it's a perfect example of what we now call asymmetrical warfare, you know, two different armies with different goals and different styles of fighting. And even though they were a weak army in many traditional senses, uh, they, they wreaked a lot of havoc on the Americans. And I guess this is the big point. Um, in this, this book and this battle is about a retreat. I mean, the Chinese won. Sure. They, sure. They, it was a Pyrrhic victory. They sustained obscene just horrific casualties we don't know exactly how many but the, but they won they ejected the americans from that battlefield and uh, what this is about and i know now the marines do not use the word retreat <laughs> and i've learned that there are a lot of euphemisms uh, uh for the word retreat um you know like retrograde maneuver <laughs> that's sure. a good yeah, one yeah. and yeah. break contact what's that break contact, contact. That's another one. Advance to the rear. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, uh, General Smith, the commander of the 1st Marine Division, said famously, uh, we're retreat hell. We're, we're, we're just attacking in another direction. <laughs> and uh, but, but, you know, kind of what he meant by that was that when you're completely surrounded by overwhelming numbers of of, of the enemy who are trying to kill you and uh, that you have to a breakout and a, uh, a a return to to safe ground which was get the hell out of those mountains and get down to the coast uh, that that was going to general smith realized that was going to be a, a fight every step of the way and um, and it was it was it was a what is you know, technically called a fighting withdrawal, uh, which is one of the most difficult maneuvers in warfare. It's like, it's easy, it's hard enough to defend yourself when you're dug in, properly dug in somewhere. But when you're moving with huge numbers of vehicles and tanks and uh, trucks and uh, ambulances and, uh, um, and you only have one way out, which is this this one road that leads out up into the mountains or back down to the coast. Um, it's just, it's extremely complicated maneuver with so many moving parts. Uh, you also, you know, you have artillery and, you know, you have men on the, on the ridge lines, but the column is trying to retreat through the, uh, through the valleys where the road goes. And uh, uh, then there's air, uh, support on clear days. They had air support, which was very helpful, but also introduced another level of complexity. Uh, so, you know, military historians have studied this chosen reservoir as the kind of textbook example of, uh, of a well-choreographed, um, multi-dimensional fighting withdrawal. You know, here's how you do it. They did it right. And they got all their vehicles out. Well, I don't want to say all of them, sure. but the preponderance of their vehicles out they got their men out they got their wounded out and they lived to fight another day uh first marine division was intact as a unit and and later very shortly in the war they were fighting again so whereas the alternative was simply they would have been annihilated um and what a blow that would have been to morale and, and to the war effort and you know maybe 
profoundly have changed history if, if they had been annihilated. Uh, probably there wouldn't be a South Korea. Uh, there'd just be the Kim dynasty run, running the whole show. So, um, so that's why it's celebrated and studied and um, talked about endlessly, um, especially by the Marines. Of course. <laughs> who, uh, a lot of people say that I maybe drank too much of the Marine Kool-Aid in writing this book. Of course, the Marines say I didn't drink enough of their Kool-Aid. <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. Uh, I try to cut, cut, you know, find a balance there, but um, they are, of course, an extraordinary fighting force, and um, and and this is one of their shining moments. And I would actually disagree with you when you said like this is what we always talk about because I I, I don't think we do. And in, in just from my sort of anecdotal experience, I just as a kid who kind of grew up listening to the World War II stuff of the grandpa era yeah. and reading and watching Band of Brothers and that sort of thing and a little bit of Vietnam that was sort of here and there and maybe the yeah. Black Hawk Downs. Mm -hmm. It's like Korea just doesn't come up much mm -hmm. at all. It, it mm -hmm. is the forgotten war. And, but as you're describing it, how do you forget it when it is so bizarre? It is bizarre just from the beginning of what all we're describing, the sense that um, you're talking about Truman and, and, mm -hmm. and the politics behind it. Well, this is the first kind of war that we did without Congress approving it. They didn't mm -hmm. declare war. And yet we did do a war. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And then the hand, like you're mentioning, you said it was medieval. Yeah. Hand to hand combat. But then in medieval times, they didn't fight in the winter mm -hmm. and they yeah. didn't fight at night. Yeah. You know, you took a break during those. Those were the off. It was the off season and then the yeah. off time to fight. It was during the day. And yeah. so that adds a different level of um, how it's bizarre, too. But it is medieval in a sense because you kind of have the king. I'm still going to use sort of the peasant army in a way, just using his cannon fodder to sort of overrun. But yeah. then it is bizarre because we're fighting in Korea with mm -hmm. Americans versus Chinese. We're not <laughs> even talking Koreans versus Koreans here. I know. I know. I know. It, it, yeah, it, there's so many levels of it. And it was, you know, uh, the United, we, we do forget that the United Nations forces were there, uh, meaning um, a lot of other troops from a lot of other nations. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a, you know, a difficult logistical and administrative thing to kind of corral all these different people who speak these different languages. I mean, there's Turks and Colombians and uh, there was a very, uh, very intense uh, British fighting force of the Royal Marines who were at this battle and Puerto Ricans. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, it, it, it's kind of a, like a Tower of Babel, Babel kind of thing, all these different uh, cultures. Uh, uh, but, but of course, the Americans overwhelmingly, both nu numerically and, and it's just in terms of leadership, we're, 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 the, uh, we're, we're running the show. Um, uh, so um, it's confusing. I think we are talking about it more because these guys are coming to the end of their lives. Sure. If you go to Washington, D.C., the Korean Memor War Memorial has become just hugely popular and mm. um, just millions of people go there now, uh, whereas you know, when it first opened, that was not the case. Um, there's, you know, my, my book is only one of, you know, a whole bunch of new books that have come out about the Korean War. I, I, I at least hope that it's going to get a, elevated to the proper level of, you know, where we should, you know, dis, of discussion. Um, but, but you're right, we, we, we're, we're still focused, I think, more intensely on World War II. And um, maybe we always will be, I don't know. It's, Can you, it's a, I was just going to say, it's not black and white the way World War II is, right? Mm. We're just spoiled in that sense. Good versus evil, evil, clear-cut winner versus mm. not. It's mm -hmm. just an easier story that we're probably more comfortable. We like telling that story anyway. Mm. Overcoming Nazis, like who doesn't want to tell that story, right. uh, given the right. atrocities that they did, and the Japanese and what they did too, and, and China and all the, and Korea and the places that they sure. um, dominated. You know, We want to hear that the good prevailed over something like that, and to, to yeah. think of what happened here. And, and really, I think since, mm -hmm. um, I think what you're describing with, uh, this stalemate and it could have ended a lot earlier in the same result. I think you just described operation Anaconda in Afghanistan when we mm -hmm. pushed out Al Qaeda mm -hmm. and that was why we were there. And then, but we just still kept it up for 20 more years, trying to create our own version of government or something. Yeah, and yeah, look where yeah. it is now. Taliban are in charge. Yeah. Al Qaeda is yeah. gone. You know, yeah. that's no different than it was early 2002 yeah maybe if we never entered uh it would have been the same result in the end yeah yeah uh, 
Um, yeah, I know. Uh, it, it, I, you know, it's 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 messy. It's gray. It's comp, uh, conflicted. Um, there, there. You can ask legitimately questions like, "Should we have been there? What if? What would have happened if we'd never gone there?" Um, now, one of the things that I will say on that score is that, you know, when I, I went to I went to South Korea with a, a whole bunch of veterans. Um, because South Korea has this amazing program where they very generously pay for Americans and all the other UN forces. If you're if you're a veteran from that war, they will pay your way first class, get you to Seoul, take you all over the the country on these bullet trains or in these you know beautiful air conditioned uh, buses, take you to battlefields, take you to memorials and monuments. It is not the forgotten war there and. Mm. They have not, they, the government wants to very overtly reach out and thank them, you know, for saving them. And you only have to go, which we did to the DMV, DMZ, several times we went to the DMZ and uh, you look across the concertina barbed wire and the, you know, minefields uh, and you're looking at North Korea and that's what, you know, it would all have been uh, if these men had not been there and hadn't fought um, the way they did. Uh, you go to Seoul and you see this, you know, democracy that is booming and is the 11th largest economy in the world. Uh, and you see, you know, uh, not that it's a perfect place, but it's a dynamic society with mm -hmm. a democracy. Um, mm -hmm. And these men, most of them, you know, when they had last seen Seoul, it was a, it, it, it was in, in ruins and it was smoldering and it was just a, wow. a, a nothing of a place. And, uh, and the rest of the country was, you know, like a feudal agrarian society, you know, and now here is this sort of, with all this industrial might and this, you know, massive uh, film industry and, you know, pop culture and, sure. you know, shopping malls and high rises I'm, I'm not saying this is all good stuff but it's certainly better than what you have across the dmz uh with a paranoid society run by this bizarre dictatorship and uh uh you know the you know, work camps and thought control and everything else and so um so for so from the point of view of the veterans i think most of them certainly the ones have gone back to visit seoul they kind of realize hey we did something good here we 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 pushed back a malevolent dictator who was run who was malevolent in and of himself but was backed by these two other guys i mean there's no one in perhaps world history who matches stalin uh on the malevolence scale <laughs> and then yeah. and then mao uh, and we pushed these we we pushed these guys back and we uh created this bulwark of democracy. Um, so, you know, from their point of view, it's, it's a little more, it's not so gray. It's, it's actually quite black and white. To get into some of that, the confusing aspects there, something I always thought was interesting was this dynamic. I'm hoping you could add some light to this, but mm -hmm. China didn't enter the war. It was a volunteer army, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Whereas this, I guess it projected forward, it was this deniability of Chinese involvement in a weird way. No, well, that was it. They that was their public statement is that oh, we didn't enter the war. Um, these are volunteers who just oh, we'll just pick up rifles and and go um, help out our brethren to the south in, uh, in across the Yalu River. That's not true at all. They were they, they it was Mao's army and it was run by Mao and his generals, mm -hmm. and uh, they were had been preparing prior to this to invade. You know, and they were they were planning an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, um, and uh, which was then called Formosa. But it's you know Taiwan, which is still an issue today. Like there's always the fear that China is going to reclaim <clears throat> Taiwan. They never acknowledged that um, China Kai-shek and his forces uh, legitimately, you know, could have Taiwan. Uh, so they were planning this sort of trop this war in a tropical, um, on a tropical island. They were wearing, you know, essentially pajamas and little sneakers uh, with no socks. When they got, they got the 
call to say, no, we're not going to Taiwan. We're going to go up to North Korea and in the winter and fight. And so consequently, so many of these poor Chinese soldiers um, were hor horrifically ill-equipped for battle. And um, I mean, we were too, the American troops were too, but wow, the Chinese, I mean, like they didn't have socks. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have gloves, um, a lot of them. And, um, you know, so, uh, so no, but no, uh, but that was, Good. Get back to your question. They did. Mao did, as a kind of political cover. He 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 would he would argue that this was not an official action on our part. This is uh these are volunteers. I mean, um, we just, laugh about that now. Was it? Did people at the time were they able to laugh? Did Truman just say, "Yeah, whatever"? Um, I think we saw right through it pretty right, quickly. Right. And and what happened was, you know, we we started having some early skirmishes with forces that we thought were North North Koreans. And it turned out they were, because we capture some and we would interrogate them uh, on the battlefield and learn that no, they're they're Chinese. And they would, they're pretty forthcoming actually. Like, yeah, we're we're from the Ninth Army Group or whatever. And uh, this is our unit and we're we're from China. <laughs> we're yeah. Chinese and there's about a hundred or 200 or maybe 300,000 behind us. Uh, so, you know, and, and that's a, a big part of the, the book, um, the early going. I try to really examine why do we have this massive, such a massive intelligence failure? Um, uh, you know, how did, how did it happen that we did not know that there were so many hundreds of thousands of Chinese soldiers who had flooded across the border and gotten into these positions? And even when we... We, we, well, the intelligence was coming in uh, and it was pretty loud and clear. Why did we ignore that intelligence for so long? Uh, and and um, well, the, the answer to those questions, all, all roads lead to Tokyo and General MacArthur and his yes men who didn't want to believe this. It, it was an inconvenient narrative. They didn't want to know about it. Uh, they just wanted to march the Yalu and get the war over and um, uh, they they willingly ignored this intelligence and i even think they you know there there's plenty of evidence that they actually covered it up uh, for a while um and um you know i think it's indicative of the the phenomenal power that macarthur had at that point i don't know that there's ever been a time in american history when when more power was concentrated in one man in on one man's uh, office, and, and you know, because MacArthur was not only leading the occupation, but he was the the, the leader of, of of the American forces in the in the Far East. He was the commander of the UN, all UN forces, uh, and he was you know potentially running for president. Uh, that was the great fear is that he was going to run for president, and so people back in Washington, at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Secretary of Defense and uh, Secretary of State and, and certainly Truman were all kind of terrified of MacArthur and his ego and, you know, what would he do? What would he say? Um, so um, this intelligence failure happened just in the simplest terms because of, of the unique personality uh, and, and all the power that this one man uh, had. An emperor. An emperor. Who is near? You know, he was a little past his um, expiration date. Uh, you know, he was getting on up there in years. He didn't like, you know, traveling much. He liked his creature comforts there in Tokyo. He never slept a single night on the ground in Korea. Uh, so, I mean, I guess you could say by by definition, he was an absentee general. Um, uh, he'd come hard over to, for a photo op and then he'd fly back. Um, that's hard to grasp. It'd be so easy to do. It'd be, you know, a mistake and you could spend a night in Korea, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And he's army commanding Marines on the ground, telling yeah. them to do things. I mean, that's an incredibly, that's a big nuance here too, that those guys on the ground, everyone's suffering from these decisions. They're suffering from the leadership making decisions. They're suffering mm -hmm. from sick offense, you know, sucking up to anybody and everybody to stay in power. These intelligence mm -hmm failure and the yes men mm -hmm. and just back to the story itself on desperate ground is still to me it's the story of the grunt having to suffer through these 
yeah. just terrible decisions that were made for them in a lot of ways yeah. that placed them there. And these were the guys we, some of those stories are just so incredible about that guy from, I think Georgia that also was on Iwo Jima and he mm-hmm. was a platoon leader, found himself in Korea. Holy smokes. But a mm-hmm. lot of the people, they were still that world war II experience, right? Those were their older brothers who did it, who fought yeah. good versus evil. And, you know, and they never had the chance because they were 12 or something. And so you're idolizing your older brothers, your older right. cousins, your younger uncles. And, yeah. and this is sort of their shot to, you know, red, white, and blue Liberty, freedom, America, communism, you know, mm-hmm. defeat all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, but then they find themselves in negative 30 degrees with, you know, the commanding general doesn't even have a freaking clue what's going on. Cause he's in a whole different country right now. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, I think uh, with, with the first Marine division, you had this unique situation where you had a very young green, um, uh, fighting force. These were the younger brothers and cousins of, of world war II vets. Um, they, they, many of them had trained like while on the on the warships coming across the Pacific, they were getting their basic training, you know, yeah. doing target practice off the side of the boat. Um, but as green as they were, they were the, the officers, um, the non-coms and the platoon leaders, uh, they were veterans of World War II and those worst battles of the Pacific mm-hmm. theater. And so you have a very well-led, a very experienced um, uh, officer corps uh, running r- w- with these very green, uh, young, um, uh, fledgling uh, troops. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic there. Uh, they 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 got experience in a hurry, though, <laughs> in a real yeah. hurry. I mean, I, in a way, I sort of personally relate to that with the whole GWAT thing that we were in, because by the time we were in, it was almost 10 years into it, in mm-hmm. a sense. And so you had a lot of the, you know, coming in as a platoon leader, as a young 24, 25-year-old, half the people had combat deployments under their belt, right? The team leaders, the squad leaders, platoon, everybody is very well versed in combat. Yeah. Uh, two, three years of really bad experiences, like the Fallujah timeframes and all that is a part of this. And, mm-hmm. um, but you're still taking orders from the top and it's yeah. like, you don't yeah. know who's coming up with those orders and yeah. what really should we be doing on the ground? Is this even doing anything? Uh-huh. Um, so we were lucky to have that sort of experience, but I still view it in, unfortunately similar terms because these aren't good things i don't think that we're talking about this sort of um, disconnection between those at the top and then those on the ground actually doing the job yeah and so so with the chosen reservoir you have this you know in the middle of all this trying to sort it all all out you have this amazing general general smith oliver prince smith who commander of the first marine division who Weeks before it seems like everyone else, he sees a battle coming. He sees this is not good. We're marching into the this wilderness on this single road that's a serpentine road. You know, every hairpin turn is another opportunity for an ambush. Uh, uh, everything he's been taught, uh, all his instincts are at on high alert. And um, he, of course, Marines don't even like to get away from the ocean. You know, they're they're amphibious creatures. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Here sure. we are way up in the mountains. And yeah. um, so he starts planning against the, the, the judgment of all the his superiors, especially MacArthur, uh, for a battle. And, and so he's like, well, if we're going to have a battle, we need a headquarters. We need to build uh, essentially a citadel in the, in, the, in the wilderness somewhere where we can have our supplies and our ammunition and our food. And we need to build an airstrip because there's no airstrip. <laughs> Where are we gonna get, how are we gonna get the food and, and supplies and ammo in and how are we gonna get the casualties out? And they're like, what do you mean casualties? What casualties? There's not gonna be casualties. You know, there's not gonna be a battle. So almost against, almost to the point of insubordination, General huh. Smith has to plan for a battle you know, because what he's doing is looking after his own men. This is, you know, this is what a field commander has to do. He's, he's not so concerned about the larger strategy. He's con- he wants to protect his own men. Um, mm-hmm. yep. and, and yet still keep marching north because that's what the orders are. So yeah. he's, he is really sorting through a lot of, he's in a tough position. He's between a rock and a hard place. And uh, he decides uh, this place called Hagaru um, is 
is going to be the place for his headquarters for the airstrip they dig this the, the engineers dig this airstrip out of the frozen dirt and um working 24 7 you know under the these floodlights uh fighting off the chinese as they literally they're like on a tractor or on a bulldozer with a, with a rifle in their hand you know and you know i think the kind of unsung hero of this whole narrative in many ways were the engineers the battle engineers who built bridges mm. and rebuilt bridges and built this airstrip and and did a lot of other amazing things under very difficult circumstances so they do build this airstrip that's just barely long enough to accommodate some larger planes to get supplies in and yes to get those casualties out and there are I've forgotten the number now, but many, many, many thousands of Marines and, and other soldiers who were, who were injured, who got out on, on that airstrip and really owe their life to the decisions that General Smith made. This is why General Smith is like revered, like, you know, like a God among the, the Marines um, for having the foresight. Uh, you know, he was almost, I don't want to say he was clairvoyant. I think he, he but he, he saw that a battle was going to happen and he, he, you know, he, it was a trap, you know, they were surrounded mm. and um, he had to plan for it. And he did. I just kind of wonder what that would look like on the ground. So you've got the, the ground commander who understands what's happening to your point, maybe a little clairvoyant, but the higher commanders that are completely missing everything. That's a theme. I feel like every war has that to some degree. Yeah. I wonder if it was different, right? If, if the, higher level commander really had it nailed and the guy on the ground didn't mm -hmm. how much different does that turn out but yeah. yeah lucky to have had smith yeah um and you know he was the right guy in the right place at the right time um he had been through hell and back with uh in, during world war ii um and he was a very cautious guy a very very meticulous planner um interesting guy in and of himself he they called him the professor and you know he's kind of an intellectual he wasn't your typical rah-rah macho marine dude he was like this um very calm cerebral guy who raised you know like roses in his spare time <laughs> and you know smoked a pipe and had he was fluent in french and he traveled all over the world and uh, he read and during the heat of battle he'd be reading like some classic battle narrative he loved military history uh and when he retired he you know, he just worked in his garden and planted roses and red all the time. So in interesting guy. Um, he was a graduate of Berkeley of all places. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I just as a purely as a character, he, he's, he's amazing to me and uh, kind of um, goes against type. Even though he was a Marine's Marine, he was not your typical macho, um, you know, attack, attack, attack kind of Marine. Now there was one of those guys um, also in this battle, uh, another famous Marine, maybe the most uh, uh, famous Marine of all time, uh, and that's Chesty Puller, uh, who was who was um, in this battle. And he was Chesty Puller was one of these. You know, I mean, I think he was the most decorated Marine of all time. I think that's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he was attack, attack, attack. You know, and he was a great sure. and very forceful person to have. Um, on the on the battlefield um he he has famously said all kinds of things during this <laughs> he, so he was just immensely quotable and and the the, yeah. the, the war correspondents loved chesty puller because it's everything that came out of his mouth was was ready for for print uh and he said um well one of the things that happened was that um they kept dropping supplies down um in the battlefield, he was at a place called Coterie, uh, and uh, they kept dropping condoms. <laughs> yeah, oh. and it was like I said, thirty-five, you know, thirty below zero weather. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, R and R going on. Yeah. Uh, why? And Chesty Puller said, "Condoms? What the hell they think we're doing to these Chinese?" <clears throat> and and he also said uh you know he got a report at one point it's like chestia the, you know the chinese are everywhere completely surrounded by overwhelming numbers of chinese and he goes well so the chinese 
let me see if I understand you right. The Chinese are to the north of us and, and to the south, and then they're to the east and, and to the west. Well, that's great. Now they can't get away from us now. It can be an entire book of just the stuff he said. Polarisms, yeah. Yeah. He's, so. uh, he, uh, either he reminds me of Mattis, or General Mattis, or General Mattis reminds me of him, right? They seem like they're sort of cut from the same cloth. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he loved battle. He, he, he thought of it as a terrible thing if you had to go to go to a battle and you don't actually see the enemy or engage the enemy um he was a fighter and um they loved him too he was he was great and he would get right in there in the action and, and, and taking and that's it risks. that's it he wasn't just talking the game you know mm -hmm. he wasn't just running his mouth saying mm -hmm. okay big deal we're surrounded and he's saying that from tokyo mm -hmm. big difference mm -hmm. absolutely do you know how um, do you know how these battles are perceived this battle chosen reservoir is perceived in north korea and china by chance i've never heard how they view it or uh describe it well um interestingly uh just last year uh, uh the chinese uh, film industry uh in in combination with the chinese government um produced a blockbuster movie called um, The Battle of Changjing Reservoir or the, the Battle of Changjing Lake. Changjing is, is, is their word for chosen. Chosen uh, is actually a Japanese word. I remember hearing yeah. about that movie coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, they got some of the very best directors in, in China and uh, they put a huge amount of money into it. And it is an absolute propaganda film. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, it's just about the glory of the Chinese army and how great they were and how they, you know, won the battle and, and ejected the Americans. Uh, the, a lot, there's no, there's no historical no, nuance to it, but it is um, extremely well done from the point of view of just special effects and what, you know, just the, the war sequences, the battle sequences are, are actually um, quite impressive. Um, it is the, uh, it was a lot. It was it was the best best selling uh, movie of last year in the world. Uh, like no kidding, tickets. and it is the number one selling movie in in the, all the history of of, of Chinese um, uh, film. Seriously, it, it was just a blockbuster blockbuster hit, and it is all couched in in the aura of you know the glory of. Communi the communist regime and uh, uh, Mao and um, and there was a critic, like a film critic somewhere who pointed out some of its shortcomings or whatever. He was immediately jailed. Uh, you Sounds can't, about right. You can't criticize this movie uh, because right. it's considered uh, subversive. Um, so so it's interesting uh, that you asked yeah. that question because uh, I didn't really know what the Chinese point of view was on this battle until until this movie came out. Uh, and now they're making a sequel, <laughs> also set at the battle uh, at the Lake uh, Changing Reservoir. So, um, so you know, it seems to have tapped into some deep wellsprings of patriotism and 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 uh, you know, love of country, I guess, over there in China. Um, is it is it accurate enough in some senses to where it's worth a watch, or is it too far off? It's worth the watch. Just because it's the battle sequences are very impressive, and l l let me also say this: that um, on the ground, the you know from the grunts' perspective of the on the Chinese side, I mean these men suffered a whole lot more <laughs> intensely than the Americans did. Um, they 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 lost the numbers of men that they lost. The, the, how ill-prepared they were in terms of equipment and food. Um, they were, you know, and uh, I don't think I interviewed a single Marine who said they hated the Chinese. You know, like one of them said, if I saw one of those guys, I would go up and hug them, you know, because they view themselves as like brothers in suffering, you know, brothers mm -hmm. in arms, but also brothers in suffering. Um, that's not true of, of a lot of the veterans of World War II that I interviewed for my book, um, Ghost Soldiers, and their attitude toward the Japanese. I mean, they sure. hate the Japanese. They might respect them as, as fighters, but they, they generally hated them. Um, 
so that's so that's interesting. So that's worth it's worth seeing. Um, I will say that on Desperate Ground has been optioned to become a um, a limited series for television. Um, really, we'll see if it ever happens. I'm always skeptical of these things, but uh, um, it's a, a group that involves a lot of Korean money, so it, it would probably look both at the American and the uh, kind of the Korean perspective of of these of this battle, um, and would actually go back and talk about Incheon and some of the earlier actions that led up to Chosen. We'll see, I hope it happens, um, yeah. but it would be great because I think uh, we definitely, I think that this Chinese movie has certainly shown um, to, so to many people's surprise, uh, a real interest in the Korean War uh, in, throughout, at least throughout Asia. So, you know, maybe there can be a corresponding uh, show of interest here in, 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 in the West and, and in the United States. I'm seriously rooting for that and not the movie, right? The mini series. Cause mm. I just, that I, I do find that book to, for me personally, is just, it really, it puts you there and explains the context yeah. behind yeah. so much. And then, and sort of getting that on the ground suffering perspective. And, and like you were talking, just the word bizarre, how it keeps coming up and it's bizarre. The Marines don't hate the Chinese. Well, why? Maybe it's because we were sort of allied with China in a way. Mm -hmm. We definitely had common enemies not that long before the, the uh, Korean War, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And they're just the world context. And I do think it's sort of the start of this whatever new world order thing that we are in now. Um, it's yeah. sort of the, the front line of that, the new beginning post-World War II. Yeah. Yeah, I do think it has a lot of resonance today, and uh, so many of the issues that were there present then are, are, are still present today. Uh, you know, uh, the, the whole question of what is the relationship between China and Russia? Are they allies, or, or is, there, is there a monolithic co communism, or are these two very different nation states and cultures? Uh, uh, and, you know, Alliances, our alliances, the, the you know, with, with NATO, I, you can argue that a lot of the allies um, who fought in the Korean War were, were from NATO countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, yep. I don't know, there's just, a, there's just a, so, and then of course our relationship with North Korea and just, you know, that, that situation has only gotten more alarming uh, as he's, as uh, Kim has been testing all these different weapons and missiles systems. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely part of the world that's going to you know, stay in the news and um, uh, stay on everyone's, uh, you know, everyone in, in uh, security is very vigilant about what's happening over there. Um, yeah. Well, Hampton, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. I, we've been meaning to get into the Korean War more and no better way to do it than to talk with you about on desperate ground. I'm so embarrassed I got the book wrong to start with, but we'll get it right in the um, in the description. But where can people well, find you? Where can people look you up? Uh, well, my website is hamptonsides.com, uh, very easy. Uh, and, uh, you know, the books are on sale wherever books are sold. Uh, I always encourage readers to go to their local independent bookstores, but of course you can find it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon or whatever. Uh, and don't worry about getting the the title wrong uh these men um you know they call themselves the frozen chosen uh they also call themselves the um the, you know the frozen few <laughs> or the chosen few uh so you know more than anything and this is kind of my last parting thought is that you know when i asked when i interviewed them <clears throat> the main thing they talk about is the cold they dream about it. It's like they can't get it out of their bones. Uh, they, they never want to be that cold again. Most of them moved to places like Florida <laughs> long ago or Arizona or Southern California. That's where most of my interviews took place because they were just did not want and could not tolerate uh, cold. They've got neuropathies in their feet. They've got all kinds of uh, long-term problems from, uh, uh, what do you call it, you know, chill blain or uh frost minor frostbite yeah yeah and it's just uh it's it is a major part of the story so calling calling the book the, the frozen ground is 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 not too far off the mark all right thank um, you for that yeah 
So anyway, thank you guys for your interest. And uh, yeah, um, love to circle back with you some sometime in the future. Um, keep, keep up the good work. Sounds great. Thank you again. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to support the show directly, please consider becoming a patron at the link in our show notes, or you can head to our website at warstories.co. We'll see you next time.